In the name of God, creator, redeemer, and giver of life, amen. Good morning. I'm climbing this pulpit in honor of all mothers for this beautiful Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. Not all of us are mothers, but nearly all of us had a mother of one kind or another. And so this morning, we want to just take a moment to, uh, to thank you moms. Thank you for your love and for your sacrifices. Thank you for teaching us how to tie our shoes and how to make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and how to sing a song. And most of all, thank you for the pain you bore on our behalf. We owe you far more than we can ever repay. So last March, ABC News reported that white supremacists were telling their members that if they got infected with the coronavirus, they should go into a synagogue and spread the virus to Jews. This, of course, is only a recent story in the very long and tragic history of anti-Semitism. It's a legacy of hatred and violence that some would argue, argue began, surprisingly, with the story we hear this morning in the book of Acts, the stoning of Stephen. According to the book of Acts, Stephen, it seems, was a Hellenist as opposed to a Hebrew. He was chosen to be one of the first deacons of the early church and its first martyr. According to this story, Stephen dies at the hands of Jews who have become enraged by his blasphemy. Some of you know all about this because you've been following our Wednesday night class entitled Anti-Judaism in the Book of Acts. The class is being taught by the brilliant biblical scholar Jennifer Bird, and I highly recommend it. On our website, if you're interested, you can find four of the six sessions already up on our website. The final two sessions will go up at 7 p.m. this Wednesday and then the following Wednesday as well on our YouTube channel, Cathedral PDX. So anyway, in a beautiful coincidence, it just so happened that Jennifer Bird discussed this very story, the stoning of Stephen, last Wednesday, just in time for my sermon preparation. Thank you, Jennifer. She goes over the story about how there were these members of a synagogue in Jerusalem who start arguing with Stephen. And when they realize they can't withstand, this is the quote, they cannot withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke, they start spreading rumors that Stephen is blaspheming against Moses and God. So Stephen is arrested. He's brought before the council and the high priest where he argues his case by launching into this very long and tedious and really quite condescending sermon. That's, that's when this very chilling thing happens. In his speech, Stephen has been going on and on about the history of the Jewish people, beginning all the way back to Abraham and Joseph and Moses and David and the building of the temple under Solomon. Stephen's hubris is really rather amazing because this young man is le lecturing this high priest about their history as if the high priest had never heard about the patriarchs. Anyway, through the whole speech, 
Stephen, who of course is a Jew, is identifying himself as a Jew. Throughout the speech, he talks about our ancestors, our race, until he gets to this rousing conclusion when suddenly his language shifts from we and us to you and them. You stiff-necked people, Stephen says. You are forever opposing the Holy Spirit, just as your ancestors used to do. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, and now you have become his betrayers and murderers. Wow. Suddenly, Stephen is no longer talking about our ancestors. He's talking about your ancestors. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? As Jennifer Bird quite movingly points out in her class, this is a moment that should give us all chills. Because from this speech by Stephen and an earlier one by Peter, there's this unbroken chain of blame that very easily gets turned into the murderous narrative of the Jews killed Jesus. Now, of course, neither Stephen nor the author of the book of Acts could ever have imagined the 2,000 years of genocidal violence against Jews that would be inspired by this kind of rhetoric. Of course, they would have been horrified. Jennifer Bird is careful to point out that what we're talking about here is anti-Judaism, not anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism had not yet been invented, but it was on its way, thanks in large part to this narrative, which it must be repeated, gets a very important fact very wrong. Jesus was not killed by the Jews, of course. Jesus was a Jew, one of thousands of Jews crucified by the Romans. We know this for a fact because we know that crucifixion was a very specific form of execution reserved for enemies of the Roman state. And so here we find ourselves caught up in this great paradox of religion, which is that the very text that seems to teach us to blame the Jews also teaches us to love everybody, to love the outcast and the sinner, the Samaritan woman and the leper, the prodigal son and the tax collector. The author of the book of Acts, of course, is the very same author of Luke's gospel, which has the most moving stories in the entire Bible about loving all kinds of people who are considered different or unclean or unworthy. It's confusing, for sure. And you'd think we'd be used to it by now because Jesus, of course, loved to confuse us because he knew that real learning always begins in confusion. Confusion was the order of the day in this gospel reading today as well. In it, we find all the disciples gathered together with Jesus. It's the Last Supper. They don't know it quite yet. They don't know it's the last one. 
Everyone thinks it's just a big party with Jesus, big Passover party, and then Jesus turns into a giant buzzkill by announcing that he's about to be betrayed. With, this, with these words, the whole atmosphere changes from uh, atmosphere changes from celebration to dread. And then Jesus goes over to Judas Iscariot and mutters something cryptic. That means that leads Judas to run out of the room in some kind of mysterious distress. And everyone's like, what did he say to Judas? And then Jesus scans the room and says even more cryptically, you will look for me, but where I am going, you cannot come. Everyone gets very confused and upset. What is this place where he's going? It's all incredibly vague and dreadful. And then Jesus says, you know the way to the place where I'm going. So it's up to Thomas to ask the obvious question. This is why Thomas is my favorite disciple, why I named my son Thomas, in fact, because he's never afraid to say exactly what everybody else is thinking. So he blurts out, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Which, when you think about it, is a very good question. If we don't know where Jesus is, how can we find him? You know, this is a little aside for you young people out there. Uh, this is going to be hard to believe, but there was a time not so long ago when if you wanted to find someone, you actually had to know where they were. You had to actually leave your house and ask around and figure out where your friend might be and then actually go there. These days, thanks to the cell phone, we really don't need to know where anyone is in order to find them. The other day, I called a friend of mine to invite him on a nice, physically distanced walk in the woods with me. And he said he'd love to join me, but he was in Colorado. I had found him, even though I had no idea where he was. Amazing. Okay, boomer. <laughs> so anyway, Jesus is saying, don't worry, you don't need to know where I am in order to find me. In fact, even if you have no idea where I am, you already know the way there. What? In other words, if you want to find God, but you don't know where God is, don't worry, you don't need to know where God is. In fact, knowing where God is won't do you any good at all because God is not some destination on a map. God is revealed right here and now as we follow along the path. God is not something we find at the end of a long journey. It's not like the Lord of the Rings, you know, as enter entertaining a story as that is, the road to God is not some exhausting and dangerous journey through 
orc territory, fighting monsters and giant spiders, leaving a trail of dead monsters in our wake until we find the entrance to the lonely mountain where the great treasure is hidden and then we solve a riddle and then we position ourselves at exactly the right spot on a certain day in late summer when the setting sun reveals the secret door for us. No, it's, it's not that way at all. That is not the way to salvation. Rather, to borrow a phrase from Peter's letter read this morning is something we grow into as we follow our longing. It's something we grow into as we follow our longing. Peter says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk so that, so that by it you may grow into salvation. It's here for you now, in other words. It's as close as a mother's breast offered to her infant child. On this Mother's Day, what better image of God could we have than this? If you want to find God, be like the infant. You don't have to know where your mother is. You don't really even need to believe in an idea like mom. Instead, just trust your hunger. Give voice to your own longing for God. Follow that longing. Trust that longing. Stay with that longing because there you will find her. She will show up for you as a mother drawing near to you. She will give to you out of her own substance and you will have life. Amen.